you know, it's, it's not too difficult uh, to, to think of influential Christians throughout the course of history. Uh, if you just kind of start thinking about uh, influential Christians over the last 2,000 years, surely names start coming into your, your head. I mean, we can start just with the Apostle Paul. This is a, a man who, who traveled all over, uh, established numerous churches. He stood trial for uh, the gospel, and he wrote numerous letters that are now part of our Bibles. Uh, or we can think of the uh, North African theologian Augustine, uh, after his conversion in, in 387, he became one of the most influential Christians in the world. Uh, he wrote The City of God. He wrote his confessions. These are works that are still read over 1,500 years later, and his theological formulations still hold weight for both Protestants and Catholics. Or we can think of a man like, like John Wycliffe, who argued in the 14th century that people should be able to read the Bible in their own language and and he began working on translating the Bible into English for the first time. Perhaps less well-known around the world, but, but influential where I live in, in Thailand is a man named Dan Beach Bradley. Uh, this was a missionary to Thailand in the 1800s, and he uh, brought the first Thai script printing press and then published a Thai dictionary and then introduced modern medicine to Thailand, and then he translated the Old Testament into Thai for the first time. Uh, so a man of, of great accomplishment. It, it was said of, of Bradley that he was constantly found singing hymns and, and reading the Bible and praying. And of course, we could just go on and on listing influential believers who have had great success in various spheres. And I think when we hear about people like that, we are simultaneously amazed and intimidated. I mean, on the one hand, we're awed at what God has accomplished through His people. But the, on the other hand, we look at our own life and we wonder if we're really contributing to God's mission in the world. I mean, is it even possible to make significant contributions without greater resources than we have or without intellectual superiority or, or even just more people in the room? Is it possible for you and me to make a dent in God's plans in the world. Well, I want to look this morning with you at the little letter of 3 John towards the end of, of your Bibles. And this letter gives us a glimpse into the life of someone that the Apostle John was compelled to encourage, even though his contributions may not have seen as impressive as a Paul or an Augustine, or even a Dan Beach Bradley. And yet, what we see from 3 John is a man who is able to live faithfully to God where he is at, just through a simple and yet intentional commitment to love and truth in the context of his local church. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to to 3 John. We're going to look at just the first four verses, but I actually want to read the whole letter. 3 John, beginning in verse 1, says this, "...the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul." 
For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. Well, 3 John is the shortest letter in the New Testament. Uh, so sometimes, you know, people might ask, maybe you've been asked this, you know, what, what book of the Bible would you choose if you were on a deserted island? And, and nobody's going to choose 3 John because it's, it's just too short. Uh, I, I think that 3 John is at the bottom of everybody's list. And maybe you've never even heard a sermon from 3 John. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe you've never read it. Uh, did you notice that in this little letter the name of Jesus isn't mentioned at all. There's no mention of the Holy Spirit, and we don't even know much about the recipient of this letter, Gaius. He's he's somebody that we really have no knowledge about. All we know about him is what John tells us in this letter, and that's, it's not much. We also don't know what occasioned the letter. We know that it was written by John, probably around the same time that he wrote 1st and 2nd John, towards the end of the first century, and he was likely advanced in age at this point. Presumably, John was in Ephesus and at the time of writing, and the various churches that were in this region, they had been facing a variety of different challenges. John's letters indicate that some people had actually left the church, and they were embracing some sort of heresy, and then they were trying to convince other people to embrace that same heresy. And that's pretty much what we know about Third John. The situation that Gaius and others faced, it, it's not all that different really from the situation that we face today, which is the need to hold fast to the truth, even in the face of wrong teaching. And what we find in this little letter is an influential apostle like John taking the time to write and encourage a little-known church member named Gaius. He's unknown to us, but this was a man who apparently served faithfully for God's glory. And he was a friend to John, a man whom John loved dearly. And I think you get a sense of John's love for Gaius in these first four verses of this letter. And that's really where I want to focus this morning. And I want us to consider what we learn about Christian love from these verses. 
I want us to, to look at the Christian love on display between these two brothers in Christ and see what it, it means for us. So I don't come this morning with a great big message about why all of you should move your lives overseas and become missionaries or anything like that. I come this morning with a message of God's grace and God's love, a message that I hope that you can apply to your lives even here in this church. I want to see what we can learn about Christian love from these first four verses. So here's point number one. I have three points for us this morning to consider from 3 John 1 to 4. Point number one is this, love for the sake of the truth. Love for the sake of the truth. Look again at at verse 1. John writes, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love, in truth. We often think that there is a tension between love and truth. So, in John Gray's best-selling book, an old book now, uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, Gray suggests that men are more concerned about problem-solving and and truth-telling, while women are more concerned about empathy and and relationships. And, And Gray notices a divide between truth and love. Or another person uh, observes that truth and love, they, they seem to exclude each other. If you want to show love, you may need to ease up on the truth. Some people think that, you know, love is, is soft. It conforms to the person that you're bestowing it on. Real love accepts someone entirely for who and, and what they claim to be, it is thought. But truth, well, that can be harsh and aggressive. If you don't really love someone, well, that kind of frees you up to say whatever it is you want to tell them. You can tell them what you really think about them. And we tend to form these two categories in our head. There are people who care about truth, and then there are people who care about love. And we might even see this division between truth and love in churches. So there are love-oriented churches, and there are truth-oriented churches. And truth-oriented churches major in doctrine and preaching and and boundaries, whereas love-oriented churches stress inclusion and fellowship and and helping the poor. But notice in verse 1 that John keeps love and truth together. He doesn't separate love and truth at all. I mean, you see the depth of his love in the way that he addresses Gaius here. So, you know, some translations soften John's address here. Uh, In the NIV, for example, John calls Gaius his dear friend, but the Greek is much closer to what we see here in the ESV, this word beloved. John is his beloved, to my beloved Gaius, John writes. I wonder when was the, the last time you used that word? When was the last time you called someone your beloved? These two brothers in Christ share a deep love for one another. But if John's love for Gaius is emphasized, truth is no less emphasized. John loves Gaius in truth. And he uses that word truth again in in verses 3 and 4 when he says that, that other believers testified that Gaius is someone who is walking in the truth. And the truth that John mentions here, it's not some subjective reality like, like how we might sometimes use it. So, you know, you might hear some, someone say sometimes, well, you just need to 
you know, speak your truth as if truth changes from person to person. Well, that's not how John uses it here. When John's talking about truth, he is talking about something specific. He's talking about an absolute truth. It's a, a truth with a capital T, something that Gaius is faithful to and, and continuously walks in, even when it costs him. So, what does John mean when he uses the word truth here? What does he mean when he says that he loves Gaius in truth? Well, I think we can clearly see what John means by looking at his own explanation for how truth and love work together. So, I want you to just turn back just a few pages to 1 John chapter 3, where these two concepts are, are brought together again. So, 1 John 3, verses 16 to 18. And I want you to listen to what John says here. John says in 1 John 3, 16 to 18, he says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, that Jesus laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So, according to John here, Jesus shows us what true love is. He laid down His life for sinners. And because of this truth, we similarly should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we love like that, we love not merely with word or talk, but with deeds and in truth. So, what does John mean when he uses the word truth? Well, he means that he loves Gaius with a love that is grounded in what God has done for sinners in Christ. God loves Gaius in the way that God has loved us in Christ. See, the God who is holy and perfect, He made us to know Him. And yet, of course, we rejected Him. We sinned against Him. We made ourselves His enemies. Our, our sin separated us from His loving presence, and it placed us under His wrath. And yet, in mercy and grace, God the Son became man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross as our substitute, and then rose from the dead. So that now anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus can be restored back to God. And God did all of this for sinners, even though our sin has always been most fundamentally against Him. And it is this truth that John says grounds His love for Gaius. What God has done for us in Christ motivates and enlivens John's love. Now, many people seem to believe that true love is spontaneous, right? Real love, some people think, is purest when it, when it just kind of springs from an overwhelming feeling deep inside of us that, that just kind of propels us to act in the moment. But is that really the, the best way to think about love? Uh, what happens when we lose those overwhelming feelings? What happens when we don't feel like loving someone? 
I think that's a definition of love that, that stands on flimsy ground. And I think much better is a love that's rooted in something real and true. True love is it's more like what our marriage vows are meant to aspire to. A couple's marriage vows are meant to motivate and spur on love even when things get hard, right? So we promise to love one another in both health and sickness. And we promise to love one another even when feelings may not be there for a season. Well, John's love for Gaius is similarly built on a stronger foundation than mere spontaneity and feeling. See, he loves him because of what God has done for both of them in Christ. He, he loves him in the way that God has loved us in Christ. He loves him in the truth. Uh, this is a secure love. It's a, it's a committed love that's built on their mutual salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, this is the, the kind of secure love that we are to have for one another. I mean, all of us can think of people that we love. I mean, think about somebody that you love right now. Picture them in, in your mind. And, and think about why you love that person. We love our children. We love our parents. We love our friends. We, we love people who agree with us, people who are like us, who benefit us in some way. Christian, is there anybody that you love purely for the sake of the truth, for the sake of the gospel? See, in the church, we don't get to pick and choose who we love. We can't love people merely because we like them. And we can't avoid loving people who are different from us or awkward or difficult in some way. See, the, the church is not the place to find people that we would naturally want to love. Instead, the church is the gathering of our brothers and sisters in Christ, people that God has saved, which means we don't get to choose them. God chooses them, just as He has chosen us. The pastor and preacher and, and author, Mark Dever, says, you know, we all are a cooperative society of garbage takers. We all produce a lot of garbage. That's the nature of fallen creatures. And in a Christian church, we volunteer to take one another's garbage because God has taken our garbage. God in Christ has loved us even though we were not attractive to Him in our sin. And so that is what we do for one another in the church. We love even the people the world calls unattractive and undesirable. Brothers and sisters, we are called to love one another in truth, which means that we love one another not because of another person's loveliness or because of how they benefit us, but because of the truth, because of the gospel, and for the sake of the truth. If you've been a, a member of this church for long, you've likely felt at times misunderstood or left out. And when you look around this room, you probably know a bit about one another's strengths and quirks. The kind of Christian love that we are called to leans into fellowship with these people, with people who frustrate you, 
and annoy you with people who sometimes are difficult. It leans into this fellowship even when it would be easier to seek fellowship somewhere else. And you know, as the, as the years go on, this church will likely continue to grow. There are going to be changes from time to time. And it's important that we don't try to hold on to an idealized version of FBC Situate, but instead trust that God knows what He is doing as He adds brothers and sisters to our lives. We, we don't want to create little groups within a growing and changing church, and we also don't want to make the church a, a place that we come to but never really invest in never really staying to build real, deep, loving relationships. Instead, we want to seek to love all those that God brings to us because of what God has done for all of us in Christ. So, Christian, you must commit yourself. You must commit yourself to God's people. You must commit yourself to the church. That, that is God's people in this room. You must keep praying for one another. You must share meals together. You must meet needs. You must sit next to members who are sitting alone on Sunday and reach out to members that you haven't seen in a while. You must, in other words, be a family. You must love in truth. And this is how we love brothers and sisters in truth and so honor God. So we see from these verses that we love for the sake of the truth, but we also see, number two, that love prays for the well-being of others. Love prays for the well-being of others. And to clarify that, love prays for the well-being of others, both body and soul. That's point number two. Love prays for the well-being of others, both body and soul. Look again at verse two. John writes, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Well, this verse has become a favorite for Pentecostal and, and charismatic believers because of what they think it says about uh, physical and material prosperity. So, a good example is that of Oral Roberts, the charismatic preacher in the 20th century. Uh, this verse actually played a pivotal role in his life, but for all the wrong reasons. Uh, he took it to be saying that God desired not simply spiritual prosperity, but prosperity in every respect. So, here's how Robert's biographer put it. He said, Oral had rushed out of his house one morning to catch the bus to class when he realized he had not read his Bible, as was his custom. He returned, hastily grabbed his Bible, opened it at random, and read 3 John, verse 2. He had read his New Testament, he reported, at least a hundred times, but this verse seemed brand new. He called his wife Evelyn and read it to her, and they had been nurtured in a belief system that insisted you had to be poor to be a Christian. And they talked excitedly about, what this verse's, about the verse's implications. Did it mean they could have a new car, a new house? a brand new ministry? Or was this, 3 John, verse 2, that led Roberts to pursue a worldwide healing ministry? And today, this verse is famous among those who hold to prosperity theology, to the health and wealth gospel. Maybe you've heard it called that. 
But verse 2 is not promising health and wealth and prosperity at all. Instead, John is simply telling Gaius how he has been praying for him. And notice the emphasis here is actually on the state of Gaius' soul. As one person observes, John prays that Gaius' physical health would keep up with his spiritual health. We live in an era when much time and effort and money is spent on physical health. And so it's maybe worth asking, are we also as concerned, maybe more concerned, about our spiritual health? The model that we see here teaches us that we should be concerned about our spiritual health, even as we pray that our physical health might catch up to that. And so I wonder, in in your prayer services, do you put into practice what you see here? Uh, Of course, praying for people's needs and burdens, even as you make sure that you don't forget the far more important spiritual implications. Stephen did a a wonderful job modeling this in his pastoral prayer a few moments ago. Uh, We should make John's prayer our model as we pray through our membership directories something that I would certainly encourage you to do. We, we pray for the good health of church members. We pray for clear doctor's reports. We pray for safe surgeries. We pray for safe travel and successful job interviews and help in parenting and all the other things that, that regularly come up in life. We, we pray for these things. And yet at the same time, we should pray that God would help us trust in Him and depend on Him more. We pray that our love for Him and others would increase. You ever pray that prayer? We pray that we would enjoy greater discipline in evangelism. We not only pray that our kids will be successful in school, but that most importantly, they will grow up to love Jesus. Friends, this is how Christians pray. Yes, we pray for health, but most importantly, we pray for the health of our souls. Let me just consider the song that, that I'm sure you sing here sometimes. It goes like this, when peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows rolls, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. If the Lord should descend, or if Satan strikes and trials come, even so, it is well with my soul. We pray like John because we believe that no matter what comes our way, our souls are safe with Jesus. We pray like John because we know that no matter what happens to our physical bodies, the Lord has promised safe passage to our souls. And do note just what should be obvious from verse 2. Christians pray for one another. Right, when John says that he prays for Gaius, I believe him. Prayer for one another must be a regular part of the Christian life. It's why the most important service, maybe the most important thing this church does outside of the Sunday morning gathering is whenever your church gathers to pray, 
And I just want to exhort you as maybe the visiting preacher, I, I have a little bit more safety saying this, don't neglect the sweet times of fellowship and prayer together. And brothers and sisters, as we pray for one another in prayer meetings or, or privately, let's be sure to, to tell one another that we're praying for each other. I mean, don't you think it was encouraging to Gaius to hear that John prayed for him in these ways? I mean, isn't it encouraging to you to be reminded that, that we can trust our whole selves, both body and soul, to God? And that no matter what is battering our bodies, our souls are getting along well in Christ. I mean, isn't that encouraging to hear? Let us love one another by being a church that prays for one another in both body and soul. So we are to love for the sake of others, for the sake of the truth, and then love, praise for the well-being of others. But finally, point three, love rejoices in the faithfulness of others. Love rejoices in the faithfulness of others. Look again at verses 3 and 4. John says, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Love rejoices in the faithfulness of others. And notice here, here's that phrase, the truth again. Gaius lives according to the truth. He's faithful to it, and he walks in it. Again, this phrase is specifically talking about the gospel message, the message that Jesus Christ died for sinners, that, that we've rebelled against God, we deserve His death and, and judgment, but God mercifully has not left us in sin. Jesus took our sin and the punishment for our sin upon Himself. He died in our place and, and rose again, and so now we live lives of repentance and trust. And Gaius not only believes this truth, but he walks in it. He believes the gospel, and he lives it out in his life. He lives a life characterized by repentance of sin and trust in God. And notice that this message so affects his life that it can be seen by others. According to verse 3, believers testified to John about Gaius's faithfulness to the truth. They could see it. His faithfulness was evident to others. And the result for John was a wellspring of joy in his heart. I mean, he says his greatest joy is to hear that his children, his disciples, are walking in the truth. And I am just struck. I'm struck by how easy it is for John to find joy. Right? He, he doesn't need money. He, he doesn't need fancy vacations. He just wants to see brothers and sisters in Christ walking in the truth, living faithfully. Does such faithful living in others bring you joy too? I think we catch glimpses of this joy. I mean, doesn't it encourage your faith each Sunday to hear one another sing to the Lord. 
mean, when you just look around the room and you know, oh, that sister, she's going through something really hard and difficult, and yet look at her sing to the Lord. I mean, doesn't that encourage you? I heard a story this last week of someone, actually a Chinese believer, uh, someone who recently became a Christian. She recently became a believer. And in her baptism story, she said that her co-worker shared the gospel with her, and her initial reaction to that was to end the friendship. She didn't want to be friends with someone who believed the kinds of things that this Christian was saying. But she actually kept listening, and this brother kept sharing, and eventually she became a Christian. I mean, doesn't it encourage you to hear of that brother's faithfulness to share the gospel, even in the face of potentially losing a a friendship? It's encouraging to hear about the faithfulness of others. But notice in 3 John that John doesn't hesitate to write to Gaius about how Gaius's faithfulness brings him joy. Have you ever been praised by somebody that you respected? Or have you ever seen a, a child respond to the positive praise of his parents? Often a, a timely word of encouragement goes much further in stirring people to faithfulness than a word of rebuke. I mean, so you, you can imagine how John's words must have spurred Gaius on to even greater faithfulness. Well, brothers and sisters, we want to be the kind of people who rejoice in the faithfulness of others, like what we see here. Or as one person wrote, good men will rejoice in the soul prosperity of others and are glad to hear of the grace and goodness of others. We should be a people that look for the evidences of God's grace in one another's lives. And we should praise God when we see it. And we should even point evidence of grace out in one another's lives. You know, in a world where people pick one another apart on social media, in a world where people seem better at critiquing one another over differences, it will be our gracious words, those words of ours that build others up, that are going to stand out, that are going to make the real difference, that are going to influence people in the right ways. And by the way, rejoicing in the faithfulness of others, that doesn't mean that we only rejoice with others insofar as they agree with us on all matters. Remember that phrase here, the truth, is specifically referring to the gospel message. We rejoice in others insofar as they are faithful to the gospel, even if we share some differences on other matters. This means that we don't have to be in complete agreement on everything in order to rejoice in the faithfulness of others. Michael Reeves says it like this. He says, the gospel serves as our mooring anchor. An anchor stops a ship from drifting while allowing it a a certain amount of movement on the surface of the waters. And just so, the gospel holds us to Scripture's matters of first importance while allowing some slack for differences of opinion on other matters. So with the gospel as our anchor, evangelicals are able to see that not every issue is a gospel issue, and not every error or departure from our view or our practice is a soul-killing heresy. 
Friends, what, what Michael Reeves is getting at there is that we can rejoice that brothers and sisters in Christ are faithful to the gospel even when we don't see eye to eye on every single issue because we agree on the most important thing, the gospel of Jesus. And the gospel holds such weight that we can even rejoice in the faithfulness of others without always qualifying our praise by mentioning our disagreements. Right? Sometimes that's, we like to do that. I don't really agree with him on these things, uh, but, you know, he's good at this. We don't always have to qualify our disagreements. Uh, this is why you can pray week in and week out, as Stephen did earlier, for other gospel-preaching churches, and even rejoice when good things are happening in those churches. And my prayer for this church is that you are quick to rejoice in others for their faithfulness and slow to critique on secondary and tertiary matters. I think that uh, we get, a, we get a, a good example of this in a man like Charles Spurgeon. Uh, so there's two examples in Spurgeon's life. One, his views of John Wesley. If you know anything about Spurgeon, you know that he was a Calvinist and he abhorred Wesley's Arminianism, and yet he refused to write Wesley off. Now, I want you to listen to Spurgeon's stern words for fellow Calvinists who tried to vilify Wesley. They tried to make him a villain. Spurgeon said, to ultra-Calvinists, his name is as abhorrent as the name of the Pope to a Protestant, a couple hundred years ago. You have only to speak of Wesley, and every imaginable evil is conjured up before their eyes, and no doom is thought to be sufficiently horrible for such an arch heretic as he was. I verily believe that there are some who would be glad to rake up his bones from the tomb and burn them, as they did the bones of Wycliffe of old, men who go so high in doctrine and yet add so much bitterness and uncharitableness to it that they cannot imagine that a man can fear God at all unless he believes precisely as they do. Or consider Charles Spurgeon's disagreement with a man named George Herbert on the doctrine of the church. Spurgeon said, where the Spirit of God is, there must be love. And if I have once known and recognized any man to be my brother in Christ Jesus, the love of Christ constrains me to no more think of him as a stranger or a foreigner, but a fellow citizen with the saints. Now, I hate high churchism as much as my soul hates Satan, but I love George Herbert, although George Herbert is a desperately high churchman. I hate his high churchism, but I love George Herbert from my very soul, and I have a warm corner in my heart for every man who is like him. Let me find a man who loves my Lord Jesus as George Herbert did, and I do not ask for myself whether I should love him or not. There is no room for question, for I cannot help myself unless I can leave off loving Jesus Christ. I cannot cease loving those who love him. I will challenge you, if you have any love to Jesus Christ, just try to pick or choose among his people. See, Spurgeon had the gospel as his anchor, and as a result, he was able to rejoice in the faithfulness of others even when they didn't see eye to eye on every detail. Now, brothers and sisters, this church, I know, I know from Stephen, it has a strong statement of faith, and this church happily stands on that statement of faith, and that is good, and that is right, and you should hold fast to a statement of faith. You should rejoice when you see members of this church persevering in that statement of faith. 
But let us also rejoice in the faithfulness of all who hold to the truth of the gospel, that which is of first importance, namely, that Jesus Christ died for sinners, and that He rose from the dead, and that we can be saved in and through Him. And let us rejoice even in the face of secondary differences. Well, we, these first few verses of John's letter, they teach us that we must keep love and truth together. Within Christianity, they are intimately related. If we proclaim the truth without living lives that demonstrate love, we're going to find that people will reject the truth. On the other hand, no matter how loving we appear, it is only the truth of what God has done for sinners in Christ that can save. And without the truth, people's lives continue toward destruction. The truth is, we were created by a holy God. We have sinned against Him, and we are underneath His judgment, and our only hope is found in Jesus, the Son of God, who died for sinners and rose from the dead. If, If you would be saved, you must turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the truth. And for those of us who have embraced this truth, we must now live it out particularly in love, in the context of the church. We love in the way that God has loved us in Christ. We love for the sake of the truth, and we do that by praying for one another, by praying for the well-being of one another, and we do that by by rejoicing in one another's faithfulness.